Welcome back, Billy, to 4x4 Offroad. It's nice to have you back in studio. And um, I think we're pretty much coming to the end of our novice or basic training section. I don't know if there's anything else that you still wanted to share with us. Hi, T. I think we've basically covered everything um, apart from the practical, which we still need to get to. That is indeed true. It was a good introduction. I yes. really enjoyed it. I mean, how many weeks have we spent now? I think about eight weeks, seven or eight weeks of chatting around all these operating principles. And I've really learned a lot. And it's been brilliant. Um, yeah, and actually that's uh, my two-hour theory session. Basically expanded over, over eight or nine weeks that we've done it now already. I think we stretched it a little bit beyond two yes, hours. Yes, well, it's Obviously always good to have a longer discussion, yeah. and, and I'm glad for the opportunity. Very privileged <laughs> to have this one-on-one, <laughs> one-on-one opportunity. Um, but I've learned so much, um, and as a woman who, before I met you, have known absolutely nothing about four by four, and the world of four by four, it's it's just been an eye opener. Um, it, it doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to become a 4 by 4 person, you know, in my life. But I'm certainly now appreciating it and I could go on a trip and understand it and even appreciate it. Mm. And, you know, if it's in a group or, or something like that. And wait until you get behind the steering wheel. That's the thing I'm worried about, that the <laughs> bug might bite, you know. So, But anyway, we'll get to that Um as you said, you want to wait for the rainy season to kick in so that I can get stuck in the mud properly. Yeah, and then we can um, give you proper practical yeah, experience. it's going to be good fun. But let's say for argument that that bug bites me and I want to invest in a 4x4 vehicle. So I have to now, out of the vast array of things that are on the market, look at the basic things like petrol or diesel or auto or manual, but something tells me there's a lot more to it than, than just that. And without getting into brand-specific discussions, what are the questions that a person like me, who is now saying, I want to take up 4 by 4 wing as a hobby? Yeah, do? let's not talk about brands because as the president of the Jeep Club, I'm obviously biased just a little bit. Just, just a <laughs> tiny bit, and we, we respect that. But, um, yes, yeah, so this, the, the first question I would ask you then, if you say which 4x4 to buy, is what are you going to use it for? Because mm-hmm. every 4x4 has its place and its purpose. Um, otherwise, all the vehicles would be constructed exactly the same, and there would be no difference because... Manufacturers also manufacture as per people's requirements, and people require different things from their vehicles. For instance, if you want a vehicle to carry a load, then the bucky is the best solution because most one-ton buckies can carry a full one-ton load, and they can do it comfortably, and that's exactly what the suspension is designed to do. Um, and then having 4x4 added later on to a bucky just enables it to carry that load maybe over different kinds of terrain and to be able to go off-road easier. If you want a vehicle that has um, a good art- 
articulation so the wheels get uh, doesn't get lifted off the ground easily then you'd want a vehicle with a lot more suspension travel so you want um, a vehicle with coilover suspension so coilover suspension gives you a lot more travel which keeps the vehicles wheels on the ground um, that's that's the things that you look at so if you want a vehicle that's mainly going to travel on the road and occasionally be used off-road then you would gravitate more towards an suv type vehicle so sports utility vehicle that you can put a lot of stuff in the back and drive comfortably on the road and it's got a good entertainment system and quiet on the road all of those factors are there so it just depends on what you want to do with the vehicle if you want a vehicle that you are primarily going to use off-road then you buy something that has the best off-road capability um, and that's the kind of vehicle that you'll be looking at buying in other words one one looks at lifestyle you look at your family composition and whether this is a family activity or whether you are going to be doing it within a club context where you might be going off on your own and depending on are you catering for a family or is this more of a a, a selfish little independent um, you know pleasure um, is it more adventure and and serious um, advanced terrain navigation or overlanding um, because obviously I'm thinking if you're overlanding your load capacity is important yes so if you're going over so that long you can take trips. your crates of food and Correct. camping gear and all the necessities with you yes so that's exactly what those those mm. vehicles that are um, known for being good overlanding vehicles they've got good carrying capacity so you can load a ton of goods on the back and they've got some good articulation they might not be the best for rocky off-road technical stuff mm. but that's where you have to compromise mm. and and choose between what is going to be the main purpose of your vehicle but if you're overlanding and you just happen to find a mild to moderate um, obstacle terrain you know maybe a, 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 a flat river bed or something that's not technically advanced those vehicles should still serve you yes I, I, basically any 4x4 if driven correctly can navigate most kind of terrains that you can in, um, encounter in the of wild of course yeah they're built for it's just, that it's just you've got to adjust your driving style to that mm. it might not be the best vehicle for that specific scenario but because you're having a vehicle that can carry load as well and do all sorts of other things, then you'd have to approach that obstacle a little bit differently, maybe a little bit more speed to get over across axle, for instance, and it'll still get you where you want to go. Um, people are always amazed at where you go with a vehicle that's not necessarily known to be a off-road vehicle, and you can still get to to the place that you want to go. A, a good example is we would go on serious 4x4 trips and we would go into this rural area and go and drive to the top of a mountain. And when we get to the top, there's a little hut and then next to that hut is a normal car. Parked. My goodness. 
and they've just taken a different route but they've gotten to the same destination with a normal car mm. than we would have gotten with our four by fours so it's the it's just the the route and the and and everything that you take to get to your destination might be different but you will still mostly get where you want to go so it's all about looking for the right vehicle for your needs and what you're going to be doing with it the other things to consider obviously petrol versus diesel um, certain instances diesel vehicles are uh, a lot lighter on fuel it, it is a myth that diesel is more available than petrol because all of your neighboring countries have uh, where there's a petrol station both of them are available oh, because the locals so? drive petrol cars believe okay. it or not so the where there's diesel available usually there's petrol available right. as well but obviously petrol vehicles are a little bit heavier on fuel so you might need to carry more if the fuel stations are few and far between um, but then it also depends on your budget so a big consideration when you are planning these things is to say what falls within your budget people don't realize but in in most cases your diesel vehicles because they are heavily taxed are actually much more expensive than your petrol vehicle so why is that really it's a it's a uh, emissions taxes that get put on these vehicles because they so there's uh, more on diesel than on petrol uh, definitely so there's more tax going so you're basically paying for your fuel up front and a lot of times you actually be having f you having to finance that payment okay. so you're paying interest on it as well um, so if you actually go and do the calculation in some cases your your diesel vehicle will have to travel hundreds of thousands of kilometers to make up for that difference in price between the diesel and the petrol hmm. by saving the, the the fuel so if if it's really only a monetary thing then petrol might not be a bad idea um, because in the long in the long run they work out more or less the same but up front the petrol is a little bit cheaper but you might you might sell an upgrade quicker <laughs> than if you had to run the diesel you know yes, to get so the value out of but it but if it's yeah. if you're really planning on on going on a trip where the fuel stations are far and few between then obviously the diesel will have a longer range yes but you can overcome that by putting an extra tank etc on your vehicle so there's some modifications that you can do um, so like i said coming back to depending what your requirements are. I actually prefer a petrol vehicle to a diesel vehicle off-road. Um, a lot of the diesel vehicles, the the bottom end torque tends to kick in too quickly. So when you want to do the slow technical stuff mm -hmm. and you want to pull away with a diesel vehicle, that torque is there immediately and it tends to want to pull away too fast. Too fast. So you've got to learn with a diesel vehicle in some cases to use your left foot on the brake and your right foot on the petrol to okay. control that speed to make it go really slow. Whereas with a petrol vehicle, the torque comes in gradually. So as you increase the revs, the torque will mm. come in gradually and you've got a lot more control over your, your power coming in when you want to pull away. And how does that then tie in with your transmission, like your manual versus your automatic 
all vehicles, so, so manual and aut- automatic. Um, the only advantage I see in a manual is a lot of times when you're going downhill, uh, you can use the engine compression to control your speed. Whereas with the automatic, um, the torque converter actually doesn't or doesn't enable the engine to brake the vehicle when the revs are low. So, so that's the real difference between the manual and automatic. An automatic, in most cases, off-road is actually a bit easier because you don't need to keep it's changing gears. It's one less yes. thing that you have to worry about, yes. Yes. I can imagine. And in actual fact, when you're trying to pull it away slowly with with a automatic, it's a lot more control, whereas with a, with a manual vehicle, the one thing you don't want to do off-road is ride the clutch. You want to let the clutch go and let the vehicle use its power to get over the obstacle. But then you don't really have a lot of control over that pull-away speed that it uses. Mm-hmm. Um, so whereas with the, with the automatic, you can just slowly increase the revs and the vehicle will pull away very slowly. Um, so that's main differences, automatic versus manual, diesel versus petrol, things to consider and are most of the newer models automatic i would say most of the new vehicles come out with the automatic option um, as as standard i think the one of the vehicles that didn't come was the, like the jeep rubicon two-door but even that is now that they've introduced a, a automatic gearbox four and it, it works quite well as well so yeah there's most of your off-road vehicles these days come in an automatic option. And, of course, the big question on everyone's lips, um, what sort of price range is, you know, would one be looking at? Would you, would you say, as a newbie, that it's better to look at a second-hand vehicle um, and take the risk that the previous owner or owners have taken good care of it but maybe not, you know, spend all your <laughs> savings on it that depends, and, yeah. and test. Because I think it's it's difficult when you're doing it with someone else and you think, gosh, this is a nice activity and, you know, you're now going to do it. And and then you've... I actually get asked that question a lot of times when I get people that come on the introductory course. That's why I mentioned to you before, I would actually prefer people coming on the introductory course before, before. buying a vehicle. So then people come and say, well, I've bought this vehicle. Now I'm gonna, I need to learn to use it off-road. So they come on the training. And then they realize but they might not have purchased the correct vehicle. Um, yeah, it's, um, it is a risk that you take. What I would say is there's also always considerations of your budget. What you Don't buy something you can't afford. And then try and take it into the bush. And then you feel sorry for it because... If it gets any kind of damage there, then you're basically going to have a problem because you can't afford to get it repaired. Mm. Um, I would say I, I, my philosophy is always if you know what, you, what to look for in terms of a second-hand vehicle, it's always better to buy a low-kilometer second-hand vehicle because the the depreciation on your vehicle from in the first year after you've purchased it is usually 
the time that it depreciates the most. So if you're going to buy a vehicle brand new, within that first year, you're going to lose a lot of value uh, straight away. The risks there is, like for instance with the modern turbo diesels, a lot of people don't know how to drive them properly, especially with a turbo diesel. If you've driven it hard for a while, you need to let it idle a lot, uh, well, a couple of minutes before switching it off. And that's always a good habit because you need to let that turbo cool down and before you go and switch it off immediately. Now, a lot of people don't do that these days. And that's why you get a lot of people that buy a second-hand diesel and then just a couple of months after they've started driving it, the turbo goes, which is a really expensive And thing. of course, the, the salespeople in the shop don't do customer education. No, they don't. <laughs> and, and the thing is, the risk with the turbo going is if it happens while you're driving, then one of those parts get into the engine and you have oh to, you end up having to replace a whole engine. Mm-hmm. If you're lucky, just the turbo, but which is also not cheap. But it, in most cases, then it's the whole engine that you have to replace, which is the most one of your most expensive parts in your vehicle. So there's a high risk in buying second-hand diesel turbo vehicles. Um, and then obviously a little bit lower risk on the petrol side, and usually most petrol vehicles, if something does go wrong, it's not as an expensive a, a, a fix as as a turbo on a diesel, that sort of thing. But then also look at how easily available parts are and how expensive parts are for your vehicle before you go and look for a brand. Um, go and have a look and see... <laughs> What what it would cost the you if you key. had to do any repairs. <laughs> yeah. um, so oh, those are the, the kind of considerations you need to take. But I totally agree with you, and I think listeners should take cognizance of this. Um, if you are in the market for a 4x4 vehicle, get hold of Vili first. If you're living in KZN, he is the 4x4 off-road KZN trainer and he will be able to talk you through the pros and cons of certain things and help you make a wise decision um, so that you can stretch your budget. I think yeah, I don't profess to know everything. No, of course so, not, but um, the point is... Um, I'll just give you a viewpoint and you can consider it. There's experience behind the viewpoint, and I think that counts for something. So that's... That's my take on it. Sure. In any case. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm eight weeks cleverer. <laughs> so, Billy, I think um, to wrap it up, uh, we've we've gathered a few myths um, that I thought we can run through, just as a sort of a general recap sure. of you know what we've discussed. Uh, listeners can always go back to our four by four off road uh, playlist on our website. Uh, www.chatsapphire.co.za and go and listen to these first couple of weeks but yeah let's have a look and see just myths that we've picked up on the internet um, and maybe you can just give a short your release take yeah I'll on, try and keep it short and sweet <laughs> but you know it can get long winded sometimes <laughs> yeah I know it's your passion so let's start with the biggest one 
that I think there is, well, no, you'll, you'll, you'll not agree with me, but I think this is a crucial one, and that's four-wheel drive is equal to all-wheel drive. Well, uh, that's a myth, definitely. Um, we've discussed it during our technical section that for an all-wheel drive vehicle to lose forward momentum or forward power, you only need one wheel in the air. Um, so if an all-wheel drive vehicle has one wheel in the air, all-wheel drive definition of that is that you have a center diff that's not locked. So with the center diff open, the power on the drive shaft will go to the, to the front or the back where that wheel's in the air. And with the, with the differential on that axle, then the power will go to the wheel that's in the air. So technically... you stuck. You are stuck. Uh, the one caveat I have to add there is that with a very good traction control system, an all-wheel drive does not necessarily get left behind as far as you would think. Um, so with a traction control system that can then break that wheel, the power will go to the all the other wheels that are on the ground. But you mustn't be fooled into thinking you're going to do the the heavy terrains. No, so the way a traction control system oh. works is that it, your wheel will have to spin a little before the traction control system can activate. So having a wheel spin is always worse than not having wheel spin and having that traction right from the start. So having a proper 4x4 system rather than an all-wheel drive is always the better option. The right tool for the job. Correct. Then another myth is that when you're driving on a gravel road, you shouldn't engage 4x4. Four four. And along with that, you should always drive faster on a corrugated gravel road. Yeah, those are two really, really good myths. <laughs> <laughs> really, really big yes. myths. <laughs> yeah, and actually bad habits because you, you can get into real trouble and you would have heard of vehicles rolling on gravel roads mm. regularly. I think a, a certain brand was known for it a while ago. But it was really because people didn't know how to drive them off-road. And they would go on a gravel road, firstly without putting your vehicle into 4x4, which is always a bad idea um, if you have 4x4. So what happens with a two-wheel drive vehicle if you are have your rear wheels driven okay now think about it try and picture this in your mind your rear wheels are providing the power and you're on a gravel road with loose surface what happens if you want to turn the front wheels your rear wheels will just keep pushing you in that same direction and your front wheels won't want to travel in the direction that you turning the steering wheel now that is called understeer so this, the vehicle is not steering as much as you would want it to. Mm. That happens if you have a two-wheel drive, rear-wheel driven vehicle, which most 4x4s are if they're not in 4x4 mode. So then as soon as you engage four-wheel drive, you now have the front wheels having power. And as soon as you turn the steering wheel, those wheels will pull you in that direction. So you would be having... The correct amount of steer. Control, yeah. So a lot of people, if you don't put your vehicle into 4x4 while you're traveling at speed on a gravel road, 
if you get into an emergency situation where you suddenly have to steer, the vehicle is not steering as much as you can. And that's where you can roll. And that's when you can roll your mm. vehicle. Sure. Now, on that same uh, subject around the corrugation, mm. the way, well, corrugation is created by vehicles traveling at speed with hard tires on a gravel road. So if you have a long-distance gravel road that you ha that you need to travel, the best practice is to drop your speed a little bit and to try and drop your tire pressures as a little bit as well. Um, what was the recommended tire pressure for a gravel road that we, 1. if you can 5 remember? 1.5 bar. Great. <laughs> I'm glad that sunk in. So 1.5 bar for long-distance gravel road travel. And there should be a speed limit maximum connected. 100 kilometers Correct. an hour. <laughs> so with a maximum of 100 kilometers an hour, yeah. which is most gravel roads speed limit mm. in any case. And I, and I think if you can keep it to 80, it's even better because you've got a lot more control. So that obviously brings me to some of the tire myths that I've been able to scratch up out of the internet um, because I know that's your your pet topic <laughs> and let's have a look at the first one that says it's not necessary to deflate i think that is just uh, <laughs> a blatant just lie <laughs> <laughs> we've sort of def demonstrated we've it. it but yes uh, the the <clears throat> more surface area you, you you have in contact with the ground the better it is off-road um and and You'll see even even racing cars def deflate their tires to have more grip. Um, dragsters, you see those tires are really deflated, and when the when it spins, it actually looks like the tire increases in size because of because it's inflating almost, but it's it's got so much give, give. in the tire, mm. and that's to get more grip on a drag strip. Yeah. And so that one brings me to um, hard tires that are better for the, a myth that says hard tires are better for rocks and mud. Uh, well, the rock one is quite obvious. We've, we demonstrated, I think, in one of our sessions that if your hard tire is sitting on a rock and you've and got a smaller contact area, you're not able to climb that rock. And then also, and your vehicle is sort of stuck at an angle. Yes, and you got to, you're making the angle more difficult for your vehicle to climb with a hard tire. In muddy conditions, um, I know there's some old school uh, instructions that say if if it's a shallow muddy area, then your tire needs to be hard to cut through the mud and get to the bottom of the hard of the surface that is hard. But in most cases, just deflating and having your your tires in the general recommended off-road pressure of 0 0.8 Correct. on a 70% profile <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> on a 285 tire <laughs> and the speed limit on that would be 30 kilometers yeah per which hour. is what you do in low range <laughs> as a maximum in yes. any case so that's that's the recommended or our recommendation yeah Okay, next question. Um, okay, then what other myths did I find? Oh, this one is interesting, and I think we can end with this one. We spoke a little bit earlier about your 
your um, overlanders who might find themselves in slightly tricky terrain or you might be um, pulling a trailer that is also an off-road trailer and the myth says whatever you do with your vehicle you don't need to deflate your off-road trailer tires. Yeah, that's definitely a myth. If you think about it, your off-road trailer, um, if the tires are hard, it's prone to bounce a lot more. Now, especially if you've got a lot of stuff like crockery, which most people have in their off-road trailers. Because they can load those things for comfort. Even if it's foam-packed and everything, if your tires are hard, that that will be shaking quite significantly in the yeah, back. Yeah, and that's a safety issue as well for the stability of your vehicle. Correct. So if that tire, if that the trailer thing that bouncing around behind your vehicle, if you're traveling at 100 kilometers an hour, having the trailer tires just deflated a little bit mm. and usually more or less the same as your vehicle and obviously doing a little bit of adjustment for the weight if the trailer is loaded. Mm. But having it more or less the same as your vehicle recommendations is always a good idea. Yeah, and uh, logic just says if you're going to find yourself off-road with a trailer, you know, you don't want your vehicle to be able to move through an obstacle and then the trailer bogs you down, you know. you. Yeah, it's, it, it doesn't make as massive a, a difference in terms of your vehicle's capability to to drive the obstacle because remember the trailer is not powered so mm. you're just basically pulling it over the obstacle mm. but it's more around the trailer bouncing around and going off the intended route that mm. it's supposed to take yeah. um, so so that's just the and main and keeping the china hole and keeping the china <laughs> hole <yes. laughs> for those for those romantic kalahari dinners under the stars yes well personally i'll just use paper plates <laughs> and burn them afterwards Willie, <laughs> yes. i think we've come to the end of our basic introduction to four by four it's been absolutely wonderful and thank you for that and i'm looking forward to the next set i don't know what you've got planned for the listeners and i think you're going to um, I'm sure you're going to come up with some interesting things. and no, There's always something to talk about, so we'll definitely cover some topics for you. Definitely bring in some studio guests maybe, <laughs> um, people that can that can help you, you know, chat around this wonderful... No, well, uh, and I think, yeah, maybe some, some nice chat chat sessions might be good. We just yes, chat and, in general and definitely um, I want to invite listeners now already, you know, to, to send in questions. If um, there are specific things that we might not have covered or just a question that you as a listener have, but maybe about your vehicle particularly, because if you ask the question, it's not us bringing up the brand, you know, you can you can just answer a straight question. Um or a, a problem or a challenge that you as a listener have faced. Um, and then, of course, I'd love to get some chats in on routes and and activities and, and just options for people. There's definitely you know. a lot we can cover there because yeah. there's a lot of places that you can go in KZN that's off the beaten track 
and that aren't necessarily advertised as much. Exactly, and of course our whole aim is to promote the area, to promote the Sapphire Coast and its inland areas. So for listeners who are maybe a bit further afield, we're doing our best to promote the Sapphire Coast and our beautiful Natal. We'll speak to you next week. That's great. Thanks. Bye.